Hello and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. We are so glad you've decided to join us. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Wasper Chen. I'm Bradley Calhoun. And this was a Damn Interesting Week. So let's get started with our first link. First link. Okay, from Atlas Obscura, they've got this wonderful piece that remembers the golden age of airline food. Hmm. So in fairness to the people who have to engineer meals for the sky, the deck is kind of stacked against them, right? Because our ability to taste sweet and salty flavors, it drops by about 20% when we're flying. Huh. A lot of that has to do with the fact that airplane cabins have a pretty dry humidity level. So in an airplane cabin, you're looking at 12% humidity compared to, I don't know, the Sahara Desert. That's around 25%. Wow. It is. Yeah, it's extremely dry when you are flying in an airplane. And because our noses need moisture to smell properly, yeah, you're bound to be disappointed when you eat something in the sky. But Once upon a time in the pre-Reagan era, flying in the United States had this whiff of glamour, and part of that was the food. For example, in the 1950s, Pan Am passengers in economy class, they dined on stuffed guinea hen, while those in first class enjoyed scoops of caviar and eggs made to order. Mm. Straight up gourmet. But perhaps most striking of all, United Airlines ran something called an executive flight. And yes, you heard those air quotes because it was (laughs) exclusively for men. It would run between Los Angeles and San Francisco, as well as Chicago and New York, every weekday from 1953 to 1970. So it was obviously pitched as a Don Draper-esque fantasy, Mm -hmm. right? But going back to some of the earliest in-flight meals, the challenges of cooking in-flight basically dictated the kind of food you could expect, right? So if we go as far back as the Zeppelins, they had multi-course dinners that were served in a separate dining room. But when you're in a hydrogen Zeppelin, it's a real bad place to have a barbecue. So they (laughs) wanted a kitchen with no open flame. So you could come in with coffee and a hot thermos, but by the time you drank it, it was lukewarm. Mm Mm-hmm. So, okay, we're at the sandwich era. How do we get to the fancy roast beef dinners? Well, we have war to thank for part of it. Wow. (laughs) What we think of as the modern airline meal, it was actually invented as part of a defense contract for World War II. There was an experimenter named William Maxson, and he invented the convection oven. What he figured out was if you took these little trays in an insulated box, you could reheat a whole bunch of things at once. So, okay, food options. Why were they so much better back in the golden age of flying? Here's the key. Airlines in that era were prohibited from competing on price. So the only way they could compete was stuff like quality of service. Okay. I mean, you know, you want to be a capitalist, fine. But guess what? You get really good food if you have a little (laughs) bit of regulations. And Insofar as there was superior quality, it was often because an airline found themselves with inferior aircraft. So sometimes the only way they could get someone to fly with them was just better food. For example, United Airlines had the best food in the sky for a while because they put in a huge order of Boeing 247s in the 1930s. And after four months, 
the DC-3 came out, which was bigger and faster, and they couldn't just scrap their brand new aircraft, so they were stuck with something smaller and slower. All they could do was up the food. Mm -hmm. But the very best food in the air in the 1950s had to be Scandinavian airlines. And the reason was that they were perfectly aware that no one in their right mind wanted to visit Stockholm in February, <laughs> right? And this was an era in which most people needed to change planes. So they had such good food that passengers would go out of their way to fly Scandinavian airlines on their way to, say, Greece or Africa. Huh. And the same thing happened in Asia with Singapore Airlines. When Singapore became an independent country, the prime minister, Lee Kuan Yew, asked consultants, should we have an airline? And they all said no. But he wanted to be a global business hub because previously Singapore had been kind of a relatively provincial backwater. Mm -hmm. And because of their airline, it really became an international powerhouse. Mm -hmm. So, okay, we have to talk a little bit about booze, right? Because that is still a part of the flying experience for better or these days for worse. And we have to go back to the 30s to talk about this because when airline flights were just starting to come on board... People were terrified and would not do it unless they were drunk. Like they right, had, had to get loaded. Yeah, no, it's that, like that's straight up what this book author says. And this was during prohibition, so the stewardesses were at the ready to confiscate hip flasks. People would have to show a doctor's prescription huh? so they could get slammed on the plane. And we should also mention the invention of the airline mini bottle. That was partly a way to make the stewardesses stop stealing the full-size bottles to cater their own parties. Oh, no. <laughs> and the irony here is that airline food has gotten fantastically worse, but the technology has gotten so much better. And if you can get airline food in first class today, it is shockingly good because they've learned so much since World War II. So the more horrible you make it to fly coach, the more business people will demand to fly business in first class. And yeah, the airlines make it a bucket of money of the people traveling up front, which is why they make coach as oppressive as possible. Yeah, but now <laughs> they let women on. So, you know. <laughs> but at least we're not smoking in planes anymore. Right. I was on one of the last smoking flights. Wow. Uh, I actually got to experience that. And it was both awesome and awful at the same time. <laughs> as a smoker, even. I'm a smoker. And and like, yeah, it was great to go back there. And then I was like, oh, this was a bad idea. <laughs> right. uh, I mean, imagine how your food tastes on that flight. <laughs> right. <laughs> Next link. Next link. This article comes to us from lpice.com and it's titled Patient M, the man who started seeing the world backwards after being shot in the head. Oh, what? at least he still saw the world, I guess. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yes, very true. <laughs> Yeah, and this is a little bit of a vignette into the history of neurology and some of the strange cases, but especially patient M. So, on a spring day in 1938, a 25-year-old man was left lying on the ground. A projectile had crossed his head on the Valencian front of the Spanish Civil War. When he recovered consciousness two weeks later, the Republican soldier had experienced a shocking change. Under certain conditions, he saw the world backwards. The 28-year-old doctor, Justo Gonzalo, attended the patient in a nearby military hospital. The projectile had partially destroyed the ridges on his cerebral cortex in the left parieto-occipital region. 
I don't personally know where that is, but you can look it up. Uh, it's an important part, though, like most of the brain. Uh, the wounded man survived miraculously without needing operations or special care. The doctor and M survived the war and continued seeing each other for almost half a century until Justo Gonzalo's death in 1986. The researcher's daughter, Isabel Gonzalo, has dusted off her father's archives to rediscover the case alongside the neuropsychologist Alberto Garcia Molina. At a time when the scientific community was divided between those who see the brain as a whole and those who draw hard boundaries between the brain regions, Gonzalo proposed an intermediate hypothesis based on patient M, the theory of brain dynamics, according to which the organ has its functions distributed in gradients with gradual transitions. Isabel Gonzalo met patient M during his visits to the family's home. When he was resting without major stimuli, he saw a terrifying backwards world in which objects appeared in triplicate and tinged green. Huh. His auditory and tactile perception were also inverted so that sounds and touches appeared in his mind on the opposite side. Huh. Mm. At the beginning of the 20th century, Spain was a luminary in studies of the human brain. The researcher Santiago Ramón y Cajal had demonstrated in 1888 that the thinking organ was not a diffuse mass, but rather that it was organized into individual cells, neurons. Cajal won the Nobel Prize in Medicine for his discovery in 1906. Around him grew a school of talented disciples like the neurologist Gonzalo Rodriguez Lafora, who, when the Civil War broke out, recruited Justo Gonzalo to work with him in his Skull Trauma Center. There, Gonzalo, Cajal's academic descendant, met patient M and hundreds of other wounded patients. The patient's adaptive capability was astonishing, as the doctor described in his book Cerebral Dynamics, published in two volumes between 1945 and 1950. M, quote, had found his abnormalities strange when, for example, he saw men working upside down on a scaffold, Gonzalo wrote. In general, the disturbances go completely or almost completely unnoticed to the wounded. M tended to downplay his symptoms. They are things that sometimes appear in my vision. What an <laughs> understatement. Good God. Please, please don't put me in a home. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm fine. I'm fine. All good. All good. All good. <laughs> so neuropsychologist Alberto Garcia Molina works at the Institute Gutmann, a hospital in Barcelona specialized in rehabilitation of people with brain damage. The researcher emphasizes that the history of neurology is full of tragic natural experiments like that of Phineas Gage, an American railroad captain who survived an iron rod being driven through his brain on September 13, 1848. Mm. The formerly calm man became aggressive and vulgar. Garcia Molina explains that in the 1930s, the modular perspective remained dominant. The brain was seen like little boxes, he explains. When you altered a box, supposedly there was a concrete deficit. For Dr. Gonzalo, the modular theories couldn't explain the questions that emerged with patient M, so he began to create his theory of brain dynamics, breaking with the hegemonic vision about how the brain works. Yeah, and the brain is remarkably elastic to people mm -hmm. recovering from strokes. And Well, and, and I saw a thing once about a guy who basically put on a pair of glasses that deliberately flipped the world top to bottom just to, like, see could he navigate, what would it be like. And he said within, like, you know, a day or two, his brain basically was like, okay, cool. This is our new input. Right. We're wow. fine. And he didn't have a problem at all. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's, a, there's one where, same, same thing. Can you retrain your brain to ride a bicycle where we turn oh, yeah. left and versus right? So if you turn left, your bike will actually start turning right. And how long will it take you to relearn to ride a bike? Mm -hmm. It took him a while. And then when he got back on the other bike, 
<laughs> that also took a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw that video. That was pretty interesting. I've always found the cases, and there's only been like one or two, I believe, but where they find that somebody's brain is actually only taking up like 10% of their skull, but they're normal. Right. Like they don't have a left cortex at all, but they still yeah. function and still talk. Well, later yeah. we'll find out that the bulk of the brain is just responsible for anxiety. Got- yeah. <laughs> That's why our brains are getting bigger. <laughs> Probably pretty true. Next link. Next Next link. link. All right. This is from the BBC. The crazy plan to explode a nuclear bomb on the moon. Oh, no. Uh Mm -hmm. The year is 1950, and we need to blow up the moon to show those communists just what those good old boys in the USA can do. Uh No, don't do it. All right. So the title of the paper that contains this plan, it's just A Study of Lunar Research Flights, Volume 1. Which sounds rather mundane, and that's probably the point, Mm -hmm. because it's a bit deceptive, right? What's actually in the paper is a lot more interesting. So emblazoned in the center of the cover page is a shield depicting an atom, a nuclear bomb, and a mushroom cloud. This is the emblem for the Air Force Special Weapons Center at Kirkland Air Force Base. But at the very bottom of the page, the author's name, Leonard Rifle. His name is the clue that there's probably something more interesting in there. (laughs) He was one of the leading nuclear physicists that worked with Enrico Fermi and other scientists from Operation Paperclip. Mm. And Operation Paperclip, if you all don't know, is where the United States employed Nazi rocket scientists to get us into space. But to be fair, so did the Russians. So the space race was whose Nazis can get us to space faster. Mm -hmm. Oh, jeez. Yeah. So Project A-119 was born, a top-secret proposal to detonate a hydrogen bomb on the moon. So asked to fast-track the project by senior officers in the Air Force, Rifle created a bunch of reports on the feasibility of the plan between May of 58 and January of 59. One of the scientists working on this horrific scheme, Carl Sagan. Oh, no! I mean, the thing is, any sufficiently high-profile project... You're going to get the guys you know, even if it turns out this is not a great idea. But maybe this is what turned him, you know, like he got up to this point. He was like, I I can't, I can't. can't The world is too beautiful. Well, and apparently we only found out about it because he mentioned it in an application to an elite university. (laughs) He name checked it? I think that's not what you're supposed to do with classified material. (laughs) So I'm sure they would have learned something in the process, but it was for show force. That was the intent. Mm -hmm. The bomb would create a bright flash of light that anyone, but particularly anyone in the Kremlin, could see. (laughs) Mm -hmm. In the 1950s, we didn't think we were winning the Cold War, Mm -hmm. which honestly, I still feel like we're in. If the Cold War is about propaganda and disinformation, then yeah, they have been winning Mm. for a while. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Well, you you know what that means? That means it's time to dust off the old plan and see if maybe we nuke the moon after all, you know? Like, you know. Well, hey, you're you're getting out ahead of me a little bit. (laughs) Oh, no. Uh, (laughs) We need the moon, y'all. We need it. So the uh, political and popular opinion in the U.S. at the time, in the 50s, was that the Soviet Union was winning. There was also sorts of rumors that circulating that the Soviets planned to blow up the moon themselves. 
<laughs> but the only reason they came up with that plan was because they heard about our plan. Mm-hmm. It was just a copy. The worst of game of chicken ever. Yeah, and their plan fell flat for the same reasons ours did. It was too dangerous, too expensive, and silly. Apparently, the big fear for the Soviets was that the thing could come crashing back down and blow up, which they described as a, quote, Highly undesirable international incident. Sure. (laughs) They're not wrong. (laughs) No. And in the end, landing on the moon became the much bigger prize. Yeah. Uh, But according to the paper, Project A119 would have worked. In 2000, Rifle said it was technically feasible and that the explosion would have been visible on Earth. But it was just one of the many ideas floating around. And some of the projects are still shrouded in mystery. A lot of the documents are destroyed or lost. The article then goes on to say that there has been some talk in the Pentagon about it with the old Space Force. And, hey, maybe the Chinese might do it just because the moon is cool. Wow. Yeah, I decided not to direct quote, but yeah. We're no different than gorillas beating our chests at each other. It's ridiculous. Mm-mm. Like, you could even say, like, okay, we want to know what happens if a nuclear bomb is detonated on the moon, because we need to know, like, what's the fallout? What's the damage? Mm-hmm. What, whatever. But no, nah. they're straight up admitting, like, we just want to be able to see it from Earth so that we can prove we did it. Mm-hmm. The article kind of ends there, but I, I feel kind of crappy for Rifle. That's not all he did. Right. Uh, sure. he, yeah. He played a key role in launching the moon missions, worked with the governments of the Soviet republics in the aftermath of Chernobyl. But... His greatest claim to fame was inventing the Telestrator. It's the video marking device popularized by John Madden, where they draw on the screen, you know? (gasps) That's so useful! Uh That's his claim to fame invention, not wanting to blow up the moon. Right, right. Man, that's a good redemption arc. Like, could have destroyed (laughs) planets. destroyed the world. Instead, totally enhanced sports viewing. Mm -hmm. Thanks, bro. Gave John Madden a way to draw a turducken. Oh, good. (laughs) 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 all right next link next link all right next up we have an article from the bbc called why teaching robots to blink is hard but important Hmm. so the first thing i learned here is that this isn't just an uncanny valley thing human blinking Hmm. is actually really important from a communication standpoint Most people aren't aware of it, but studies have shown that blinking is often subconsciously done at specific times in a conversation to indicate pacing in a story or when it's time to hand off the conversation to the other person. Hmm. So if your goal is to make a robot that a human can feel comfortable interacting with, you can't just have them casually blink at random intervals. You have to really know when it is that a real human would blink. And that's, of course, just one of many things you have to think about, all of which are currently being studied by the research group CONTACT, or Cognitive Architecture for Collaborative Technologies, at the Italian Institute of Technology in Genoa. Oh, clever. (laughs) (laughs) One of the things they had the reporter do, for example, was sit in a room with a childlike robot called iCub and have them participate in activities together like banging on a drum in sync with flashing lights, This study in particular is meant to examine how human behavior differs when they're doing a task alone versus when they're doing it alongside a robot. Like, not necessarily interacting with the robot, just how does the mere presence of the robot affect them? And the reporter admits that they had a harder time focusing because their attention kept being drawn to this weird creature trying to play the drum. 
And, of course, if the creature were less weird, it would probably be less distracting, which is where all the blinking studies come in. At a base level, contact has shown that both children and adults fundamentally prefer robots that blink over robots that don't. They have also found that people perceive robots that blink to be more intelligent, and they expect that this will be important if the robot is meant to be trusted, such as an information-providing robot in a train station. But aside from the question of timing, just making robots blink at all is actually very technically difficult. A natural blink is a very quick movement, and one robotics company called Engineer Arts has found that only the most expensive aerospace-grade motors can get the job done. (laughs) But even then, there's a trade-off, because so far, the faster they make the robot blink, the more easily you can hear the sound of the blink. (laughs) And that in itself is incredibly creepy. Oh, yeah. And it's actually one of the main reasons that the current batch of humanoid robots tend to blink as slowly as they do, because people really don't like it when blinking makes a sound. But if you slow it down too much, number one, it gets creepy again. Mm -hmm. And number two, you actually start to lose critical data, since most robots are using cameras in their actual eyes. Disney research roboticists, on the other hand, have gotten around this issue by putting the camera in the chest instead. For them, the approachability of the face is the most important factor, and they think that people will be willing to ignore even an obvious camera hole in the chest if it means they can get things like blinking just right. Disney has actually patented a robotic sensing and control of eye gaze system, and they've done things like giving their blinks speed curves. So it's actually accelerating and decelerating the same way human eyelids do instead of a straight open and close. These robots also have the ability to notice when the person they're interacting with is blinking and try to synchronize with it because that's apparently something else that humans naturally do when we're talking to one another. Hmm. It should be noted that Disney is not planning to implement any kind of interactive AI behind their robots. It's still going to be a human having a conversation with the child through a microphone and possibly even a human controlling the movements through motion capture. They really just want long-term to be able to swap out all the people in sweaty costumes for these animatronic Mm. things being controlled at a distance. Mm -hmm. Which is honestly kind of cool to think about. Like, you could be some dude in Peoria who clocks in at the mocap studio and starts interacting with kids at the park in real time. And I think working at Disney without having to live in Florida is going to be a pretty big employer perk myself. (laughs) (laughs) I could also, I could see getting hacked. Yeah. Ooh, that's true. Yeah. It goes on a on a rampage and just starts like <laughs> spewing profanity. And... I mean, we're just making Five Nights at Freddy's. Oh, you know? you're right. 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 You're right. <laughs> Life imitates art once again. <laughs> Next link. Next link. All right. I'm gonna pause on the headline because it's a bit of a punchline. But from Ars Technica, they open with a pretty broad question. How many batteries do you think you use in a year? Well, the report from the University of Illinois reveals that Americans buy about 3 billion dry cell batteries every year, which means that an average American ends up using nearly 10 batteries a year. Oh, yeah, I'll buy that 100%. (laughs) I was trying to do the math, like, wait a second, is that a lot of battery? But 10 a year? Yes, I absolutely use that, no denial. (laughs) Yeah, that may be the floor for some of you instead of the ceiling, right? (laughs) Because, you know, almost everything we use runs on batteries. But perhaps what is shocking about that statistic is that out of these billions of batteries, about 2,500 end up in the stomachs of kids. What? Oh, yeah. yeah. Almost right. every day, there are numerous cases of kids swallowing batteries that 
power their toys, maybe it powers their watches or gadgets. And this results in many cases of internal injuries or stomach infections. But mm -hmm. a team of researchers at the Italian Institute of Technology in Milan recently created a fully rechargeable battery using non-toxic edible components. That's right. Researchers okay. have crafted a fully edible battery. Now, before you get excited, it does have a terrible capacity, but it does show we <laughs> don't have to use toxic materials for batteries. But the question I have is, if I eat it, will it give me more energy? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Brondo is what plants want, but what humans <laughs> want are batteries. <laughs> for now, we're just looking at probing that question. Um, according to Mario Caironi, a senior researcher at IIT, quote, given the level of safety of these batteries, they could be used in children's toys where there is a high risk of ingestion. But this is not the only solution that an edible battery could provide. So not just being an alternative to conventional toxic toy batteries, an edible battery could also play a key role in making healthcare applications safer than ever. For example, doctors have to be cautious regarding the use of miniature electronic devices like drug delivery robots or biosensors inside mm. the human body because they come equipped with batteries that have toxic substances. But an edible battery could solve this problem. The first author of the study and postdoctoral researcher at IIT, Ivan K. Illich, told Ars Technica two main ways a battery damages human tissue when it's inside the body is by doing water electrolysis and by the toxicity of its materials. And water electrolysis is a phenomenon where electricity with a voltage higher than 1.2 volts, which is virtually all commercial batteries, mm -hmm. breaks water into oxygen and hydrogen, which, yeah, is an explosive gas. And oh. it is very dangerous if it occurs in the stomach, right? And the great thing about this edible battery is that it's way below this voltage, around 0.65 voltage, so water electrolysis cannot occur. On the other hand, we only used food materials, so nothing is toxic. So, okay, what exactly makes this battery work? Well, first you need quercetin, which is a pigment found hmm. in almonds and capers. The quercetin serves as the battery cathode, whereas riboflavin, vitamin B2, makes up the battery anode. Researchers used nori, edible seaweed that you see on sushi rolls, as the separator and a water-based solution. They used aqueous NaHSO4, I am not an organic chemist, please forgive me, as the electrolyte. Then what they added was some activated charcoal to achieve a high electrical conductivity in the battery. And the battery electrodes come covered in beeswax and connect to a gold foil used to cover pastries. And that laminates a supporting structure made of ethyl cellulose. So during charging, the electrons migrate from quercetin to riboflavin. And when we use the battery, the opposite occurs. Therefore, we can power devices. Indeed, hmm. our innovation is scalable. And if you want to double the energy of the battery, you just need to double the surface of the electrodes. Now, the researchers do want to clarify, a user is not supposed to eat the battery on purpose. That would right. obviate the whole point mm. of making it rechargeable. But the main purpose of this innovation was to promote the use of safer, more sustainable, and toxin-free energy storage solutions. Just proving it can be done. The team is still developing various edible electronic elements. They're looking at transistors next. 
And the researchers hope that once they crack the formula for edible transistors, they can build edible logic devices and power them with this edible battery. They also plan to develop the first fully edible electronic devices with specific functions, such as monitoring pH in the stomach and eventually more complex tasks. Well, if these really hit the mainstream, I'm looking forward to when I'm served edible batteries in my <laughs> economy class flight. Oh, for right? sure. Guys, they're going straight for it. <laughs> Next link. Next link. So speaking of uh, questionably delicious things, this article <laughs> comes to us from... <laughs> Sorry, it's the best I got. Uh, this article comes to us from theguardian.com. And it's titled, Soap Can Make Humans More Attractive to Mosquitoes. Oh, no! Study oh, yeah, bad news. I mean, I don't blame them. Soap makes humans more attractive to me. So <laughs> I can't argue. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a little bit of a short duh science article, but uh, maybe something you've never thought about before. So we bring the duh to you. Uh, <laughs> lathering up... <laughs> Lathering up with soap might seem a reasonable mosquito evasion strategy on the basis that if they can't smell you, they can't bite you. But a study suggests that rather than helping you go incognito, the soapy fragrances could make you a more attractive target, mm. with mosquitoes favoring the scent of volunteers who washed with three out of four popular soap brands tested. Dadgummit. The scientists behind the research said mosquitoes may be attracted to soap because when they're not feeding on blood, they supplement their sugar intake with plant nectars. Mm. And I didn't realize that. I just thought yeah. they were just bloodthirsty jerks. <laughs> I mean, they are, but yeah. they also are bloodthirsty jerks for flowers. I mean, if they can, why don't they just stick to nectar? Yeah. Now I'm like, do you think bees resent mosquitoes? Anyways. <laughs> um, I would. I mean, I don't mean to go all bee discrimination here, but uh, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> okay. So... Clement Vinager, who led the work at Virginia Polytechnic Institute and State University, said the fact we are taking those flowery, fruity smells and putting them on our bodies means that now the same object smells like a flower and a person at the same time. However, the study also noted that the effects of soaps differed somewhat between people, possibly due to interactions between the soaps and each person's unique odor profile. Mm. The scientists concluded that soap choice could partially explain why some people are mosquito magnets while others get off bite-free. The study, published in the journal iScience, recruited four volunteers who submitted fabric samples that they had worn as a sleeve while either unwashed or after washing with four different brands of soap. Dial, Dove, Native, and Simple Truth. Female mosquitoes, only females feed on blood, were observed landing on the fabric samples to give an indication of their preference. Fabric was used rather than exposing the volunteers themselves to exclude the effects of exhaled carbon dioxide, which is another important cue for mosquitoes. Also, basic humanity and sensitivity. Like, we they didn't put them in the well. chamber full of mosquitoes because it would have ruined the results. Not because... <laughs> you know, scientists don't have a great track record with any other rationale. Right, so. right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so the results were washing with Dove, Dial, and Simple Truth increased the attractiveness of some but not all volunteers while washing with native soap tended to repel mosquitoes. Mm. The relatively repellent effect of native could be linked to its coconut scent, the scientist said, as there is some evidence that coconut oils are a natural deterrent for mosquitoes. And I guess if you really want to know how it combines with your own odor profile, you're going to have to run an experiment with yourself. That is something that we can do ethically if you are in the mood to do that to yourself. 
Yeah, the most ethical thing is to kill all the mosquitoes. <laughs> like, I understand they're an important part of the ecosystem or whatever, but just, oh, are they're they, are awful. They? I'm I told. They are. I don't okay. know. Yeah, <laughs> There's right. a little bias in this, uh, in this room. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Next link. Next link. All right. Well, once again, science has lied to us. No, they didn't lie. They did the thing that science is supposed to do, which is admit when they were wrong. Oh, good. This article from The New York Times is called Link Between Long Telomeres and Long Life is a Tall Tale. Aww. If you're not familiar with the hype, telomeres are a sort of cap on the end of our chromosomes. And over time, they get shorter until they wear away completely and the cell dies. And when we first discovered this, everyone got very excited, thinking maybe we'd mm. found the key to aging, right? Just keep those telomeres long and we can live forever. And this was supported by the fact that people with premature aging disorders do have abnormally short telomeres. Studies also found an increased risk of immune system problems, a variety of degenerative diseases, and pulmonary fibrosis in people with shorter telomeres. However... The latest study is the first one to go out of its way to find people with abnormally long telomeres and see how they're doing. And the answer is not great. Oh, no! <laughs> Dr. Mary Armanios, professor of oncology at Johns Hopkins University and the director of the Telomere Center at the Sidney Kimmel Comprehensive Cancer Center, found, as you may have guessed from her credentials, that people with long telomeres are far more likely to get cancer. <gasps> which... She says makes sense, because the longer the telomere, the more times a cell divides over its lifetime. And every time a cell divides, there's an increased risk of mutations, mm. many of which will cause cancer. Yeah. And sometimes when we talk about an increased risk of cancer, it's like your risk went from 1% to 2%. But in this case, it's a lot more. Armanios located 17 people from five families ranging in age from 7 to 83 and nearly all of them had multiple tumors, <gasps> including benign ones like goiters and uterine fibroids, but also many malignant cancers as well. Yikes. One of the study participants, Harriet Brown, has had multiple paragangliomas in her neck and throat, as well as thyroid cancer and two melanomas. And during the two-year study, no fewer than four of the 17 participants died from cancer. <gasps> oh, gosh. Oy. So it's not good. You definitely don't want long telomeres. It also comes with an increased risk of a blood disorder called CHIP, which researchers had previously thought was causing cancer in the people who had it. But this new study has confirmed that CHIP is actually caused by the long telomeres, mm. which are also causing the cancer. So CHIP is actually just another bad side effect of your telomeres. But what a bunch of new information learned. Oh, yeah, it's a great study. It's very important. It's also just like sort of a reminder of... Look, don't get excited. Like, <laughs> any breakthrough, wait. Just mm -hmm. wait a while. Find out what's really going on. Yeah. I think for me, the lesson there, too, is despite your best efforts, sometimes it's just genetics. You lost, yeah. you lost or won the genetic lottery. Yeah. You know? Right, right. Yeah, if you've mm -hmm. got the long telomere syndrome, nothing's right. going to change. Have that. you tried That's yoga? Right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sensing some bitterness, Angie. What's going on? <laughs> All right. Well, that is all we have time for today. We're so glad you've joined us. Some of the articles we did not have time to get to today include Mutated Neuroreceptor Lets Octopuses Taste With Their Arms, There's a Mansion Hidden Directly Under the Bay Bridge, and The Trees That Survived Hiroshima. So all that and more, plus everything we talked about today, can be found on damninteresting.com. If you like our podcast and want to support us, you can do so at patreon.com slash damninterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. I'm Bradley Calhoun. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.